Our Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing us as a congregation here today. And I pray that you would give us a special blessing as we open your word. We believe that we are living in momentous times, that Jesus is coming soon. And I pray that this message today would lift up the word of God, that it would lift up Christ, and that it would convict each one of us of the nearness of the, of the coming of Christ and of our need to be ready. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I really do believe that Jesus is coming soon, amen? And I really do believe that we as God's people, the Seventh-day Adventist people, need to be ready to meet Jesus in the clouds. And I believe that we need to be giving this message of preparation, of warning, of proclaiming the near return of Jesus. We have been given this message as a people to share to the world, have we not? And if we aren't sharing the message with others, how can we expect for the world to be warned. And so we as God's people, I believe, it, we need to wake up. It is time to wake up. It is time for the Lord to work through his people in the last days. And I want to speak today about the concept of Elijah and the latter rain and how they tie together. And so I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. The setting is the dedication of Solomon's temple. And Solomon is offering a prayer of dedication for God's temple. Here we read in verses 35 and 36 of 1 Kings chapter 8. This is Solomon praying to God. He says, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk, and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to thine people for an inheritance. So notice, Solomon is praying in the temple as it is being dedicated, and he's praying to God, if your people ever wander from you, if they come back and repent, please hear their prayer. Specifically, he says, if heaven is shut up that there is no rain because they have sinned, and they confess, please forgive their, their sin. This was the dedication of God's temple. And if you look at the history of Israel, this was the, the pinnacle moment in the history of the nation of Israel. They had their temple. The whole world knew of the glory of the nation of Israel. And in fact, so much so that the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon to find out what is going on in the nation of Israel. God's people 
were glorifying his name throughout the world. And the dedication of the temple was that moment in the nation of Israel when Israel reached its pinnacle. And of course, you could say when the Messiah came, eventually, that was even more so. But up until that point, this was the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. And Solomon is praying to the Lord. Now, the Lord answers this prayer. And you find the answer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is the verse that many of us are very familiar with. And actually, we'll start in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And notice the Lord's response to Solomon. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Now notice this. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Notice the Lord specifically answers the prayer that Solomon prayed because Solomon said, if you shut up heaven that there be no rain, please hear the prayer of your people if they repent. And God says, if I shut up heaven as you prayed, if they repent, I will heal their land. This was a prayer that God answered and God said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. And I would ask each one of you today, are we God's people? And are we called by his name? And do we, at this time in earth's history, need to humble ourselves and to turn from our wicked ways? The this response of God to Solomon still applies today. And you may ask, can we look at the history of God's people, specifically the part of heaven being shut up so that there was no rain, and say, was that a condition that was ever fulfilled in the nation of Israel? And the obvious answer is, yes, it was. Only 100 years later, we come to the story of Ahab and Elijah. And we go to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. We read, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now what had happened in Israel? Israel, just a hundred years before, had reached the pinnacle of its history. The temple to the Lord had been dedicated. God had, had shown his presence 
If you read in 1 Kings chapter 8, the smoke of the glory of the Lord filled the temple so that no man could enter. And clearly God was demonstrating His presence to the nation of Israel. And at that moment in time, the Israelites must have thought, wow, we are the people of God. God's presence is in our midst. We have the temple of the Lord. We are the true people of God. We are the blessed people of God. God will always bless us as a people. And yet, 100 years later, Elijah the prophet comes to King Ahab and says, according to the word of the Lord, there shall not be rain in Israel. And James 5 verses 16 and 17 tells us it was for three and a half years. So what had happened in the nation of Israel? If you look just before 1 Kings 17, verse 1, in the preceding verses, we see, starting in verse 30 of chapter 16, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And continuing on verse 32, he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So a hundred years after the temple of God was dedicated and the presence of God was clearly manifested to his people, within a hundred years, Israel was worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Baal. And so, God sends a message to the king of Israel and says, there will not be rain. And we know that God had said such from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God said, if they turn away from me, I may shut up heaven so that there may be no rain. Or I may send a pestilence. Or I may send a plague. Well, what he decided to send to Israel in this portion of history was the withholding of rain. Now the interesting thing is Baal was worshipped specifically as a god for bringing life and rain. And God said you're worshipping this false god who you think sends rain to the earth? I'm going to show you who the true god is. And then we come through the three and a half years to 1 Kings chapter 18. Starting in verse 17, Elijah had been in hiding and then the Lord told him to go meet Ahab. Verse 17 of chapter 18, it says, And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam, or Baal. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the grove, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Now notice verse 21. And Ahab came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? 
If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Now here's what happened in Israel. The Israelites were not worshiping Baal only. They were saying, let's be like the world around us, and we, should, we can worship Baal, and we can fit in with the world for worshiping Baal, but we also know that there's a God in heaven, and we'll worship him too. So we'll worship the God that brought us out of Egypt and led us to Canaan. He opened up the Red Sea. He parted the Jordan. He caused Jericho to fall down. And he gave us this promised land. So yeah, we'll worship him. But we will also worship Bel because that's what all the other nations around us do. And now the prophet of the Lord comes and says, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? Or in today's vernacular, you would say, how long are you going to straddle the fence between the two sides? There can only be one God, either the Lord God of heaven or the God of Baal. How long are you going to halt between those two opinions? And the people didn't answer a word because they knew that it was a showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. There were 450 of, of Baal's prophets and there was one of God's prophets. And they weren't ready to, to take sides yet. They were still halting between two opinions. Now we know the story. The prophets of Baal prayed to Baal all day long. Elijah even mocks them and says, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he went on a journey. Maybe you need to cry louder so he will hear you. And of course, he never did. And then when Elijah prays, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altars. The, the prophets of Baal are slain by the hand of Elijah. And a signal victory was gained for God. The story doesn't end there, and I'm going to come back to it. Because the question is, can we see ourselves in this story? And the natural response would be, boy, what was wrong with the people of Israel? How could they worship another God besides the true and only living God? How could they turn their backs from God and worship a false God, Baal? Well, you know, it's interesting. Ellen White makes a comment about God's people today. This is from letter 24, 1889. And it's also found in 1888 materials, pages 444 and 445. Notice what Ellen White says. There has been a departure from God among us, and the zealous work of repentance and return to our first love, essential to restoration to God and regeneration of heart, has not yet been done. Infidelity to God has been making its inroads in our ranks, for it is the fashion to depart from Christ and give place to skepticism. The cry of the heart has been, we will not have this man or Christ to reign over us. Notice what she says next. Baal, Baal is the choice. Now notice, she's talking about Seventh-day Adventists. She's saying there has been a de departure from God among us. 
it's been the fashion to depart from Christ. We don't want to worship the Christ of Scripture exactly the way Scripture portrays him. And so instead, we worship Baal. She says, Baal, Baal is the choice. And she says, the religion of many among us will be the religion of apostate Israel because they love their own way and forsake the way of the Lord. The true religion, the only religion of the Bible that teaches forgiveness through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior that advocates righteousness by the faith of the Son of God has been slighted, spoken against, ridiculed. Now what's Ellen White talking about here? <clears throat> because we read that passage and say, what? I'm not worshiping Baal. I'm worshiping Christ. He's my Savior. He died on the cross for me. How could it be that I'm not following him? Well, the context of this quote, to be clear, is relating to what happened in 1888 at the General Conference in Minneapolis. How many of you are familiar with the history of 1888? Raise your hands just so I know my audience here. So a few of you know. What happened in 1888 is that the Lord sent a message to his people, a message of righteousness by faith, because the church, in essence, had developed a religion in which the law of God was talked about so much that faith in the merits of Christ had been lost sight of. And the leaders of the church and the people came to believe that by obeying the law of God, we could be saved. And what happened in 1888 was the Lord sent a message that combined the law and the gospel together. So yes, obedience is important, but only by the faith of Christ working through us. And when the message came, the leaders of the church found ways to pick it. Pick at the false that they felt were in the message and they rejected the essence of the message and continued to worship Christ that they had created in their own minds, which was not the true Christ. And so what Ellen White says is, you are in reality worshiping Baal. And so that is what happened at that time. Now, what we see from this history is we see ancient Israel, they neglected the worship of the true God and started worshiping Baal. But what we see in modern history from 1888 onward is that Ellen White says, if you refuse to worship Christ according to the way the Bible lifts him up, you are making the same mistake as ancient Israel. Now, we're not bowing down to an idol that's made of gold and saying we are worshiping Baal. But what we are doing is the same thing that Israel did. Israel said, we want to worship God, but we want to worship him the way we want to. We will worship him and the God of Baal. Modern Israel, which is the Adventist church, says we will worship God, but we want to worship him the way we think we want the Bible to read. And that is, in essence, doing the same thing that ancient Israel did. 
Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> when we look at what this message was, Ellen White has some very clear statements about this message. And this is from Testimonies to Ministers, page 91 and 92. She says, The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through elders Wagner and Jones. And then she says in Manuscript 15, 1888, she says, This message understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit will lighten the earth with its glory. Now, do you know what that is? This message that lightens the earth with its glory, that is the message of Revelation 18, verse 1, in which an angel comes down from heaven having great power, and the earth is lightened with its glory. Now let me ask you this. Has Revelation 18, verse 1 been fulfilled? No, it hasn't. Because we have not yet seen the time when the earth has been lightened with the glory of God. And if that is the case, that means that the message that came to this church in 1888 has not yet done its work. Because this message, when understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. Now let's hear a little bit more from Ellen White about what this message is. She says, this message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety, and it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. So notice what Ellen White does here. Ellen White shows this message uplifted Christ on the cross. And in fact, in another place she said, it presented the matchless charms of Christ. And we as a people need to understand what the matchless charms of Christ are. Christ is our Savior. He died for each one of you as if you were the only person in the whole world. Your sins put Him on the cross. And when you see Jesus as your Savior who died for you, for your sins, not just for some amorphous entity known as the whole world, but for you personally, when you see him on the cross for you like that, it makes you love him. And the question is, do we love Jesus like that? Have we seen him as our savior lifted up on the cross because I put him there? Not because of the other people, the, the, the people down at Curup Junction at 2 a.m. Yeah, their sins, you know, they, they're a bunch of sinners, and yeah, he would have to die for people like them. No, for us, who have also come sh short of the glory of God. So this message lifted up Christ as our sacrifice, and it presented justification through faith in the surety, and it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, and notice this, when we receive the righteousness of Christ, this is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. So notice this, if people tell you that you can have righteousness by faith while you are still being disobedient, that is not true righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith is made manifest by obedience to all the commandments. Now the problem in 1888 
was that people were trying to keep the commandments of God through their own strength without the righteousness of Christ. But you know, the problem in many places today is that many people think they can have the righteousness of Christ without being obedient to the commandments of God. And this message was a complete package. It presented Christ as our sacrifice. It presented Christ as our righteousness. And it showed that when we receive that righteousness, we will be obedient to all the commandments of God. And so this message received in its fullness has still not yet occurred. Therefore, Revelation 18 has not happened yet. Continuing on, many have lost sight of Jesus. Have we lost sight of Jesus today? Do we really understand who Jesus is as our Savior? They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. Do you realize how much Jesus really loves us? All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. And she closes by saying, this is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Now, did you notice that last phrase? It's to be attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Do you know what she's talking about there? That's the latter rain. The latter rain will attend the giving of this message. Now, here is where the comparison between ancient Israel and between modern Israel or Adventism becomes very interesting. In ancient Israel, they forsake the worship of the true God and brought in the worship of Baal into their worship. And the response of God was to withhold rain from heaven. In 1888, a message was sent that if it had been received, would have been attended with the outpouring of the latter rain and Jesus would have come shortly thereafter. But Jesus hasn't come yet and we're 122 years after that. Now, notice a passage from Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3. I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2 because... <clears throat> We are waiting for the latter rain to be poured out so that Jesus can come. And yet Ellen White said that when this message was rejected, we brought Baal worship into the church. And the word Baal means Lord, which means that we are worshiping a false concept of Christ, our Lord, rather than worshiping the true God. Now in Jeremiah chapter 2, Verse 23, notice what God says. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam or Baal. See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. So God is saying, how can you not say that you're not polluted? How can you say that you are not worshiping Baal? And then verse 35, this is what, the, what God says. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee because you say I have not sinned. So God's people are saying, hey, we're innocent. We haven't sinned. We haven't gone after Baal. And God is saying in verse 23, how could you say that? 
You have gone after Baal. And then notice what he says in verses 1 through 3 of Jeremiah chapter 3. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, saith the Lord. So God is saying to Israel, you say you haven't polluted yourself, but in reality, you have polluted yourself with many other lovers besides me, but yet return to me because I love you. And then notice what he says in verse 2. Lift up your eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness. And thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. And notice verse 3. Therefore the showers have been withholden and there hath been no latter rain. And thou hast a horse forehead thou refusest to be ashamed. Now this is very interesting. God says there has been no latter rain. Now, prophetically speaking, what time is the latter rain going to be poured out? It's going to be poured out in God's last day church. So this passage is speaking of God's last day church. And specifically, notice verse 3, it says at the end, it says, you refuse to be ashamed. And yet, have you ever seen what God says to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? In Revelation chapter 3, he says in verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, and that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. But Laodicea they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They don't know their condition of spiritual nakedness. And so God says, you don't know that you're naked. You really need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And in Jeremiah 3, he says, you refuse to be ashamed and your condition of spiritual nakedness is causing the latter rain to be withheld. So we as God's people are the Laodicean church. We as God's people don't recognize our spiritual condition of being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And when we are naked, we are causing shame to God. We are His people. We are supposed to be His bride. And He is saying, you are naked, please be covered with my righteousness. And when God looks at what is supposed to be his bride, we are naked, and that brings great shame to him. And yet we refuse to be ashamed, according to Jeremiah 3. And because of what Jeremiah 3 says, there has been no latter rain. Now, you know, it's interesting, and I don't have the quote with me. Ellen White says that the message sent in 1888 was the message to the Laodicean church. So this message of Christ and his righteousness was the message to the Laodicean church. Now, there are various perspectives about the 1888 message, and some people say that um, everyone was justified on the cross even though they didn't know it. I don't find that to be true based on the record of Scripture. The record of Scripture makes it clear that we are justified when we surrender our hearts completely to Jesus Christ. 
But what is clear is that the message of righteousness by faith was given in 1888. And this message was given to prepare people for translation. Do you realize that we as Seventh-day Adventists were raised up by God to be translated? We are a people that God wants to translate without seeing death. How many of you here would like to be translated? How many of you would like to be alive when Jesus comes? Well, you realize that that's what God has raised us up for, and God has sent a message to prepare us for translation. And as I've read already, Ellen White says it was a most precious message that when it is understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, it will lighten the earth with its glory. Now I want to read a few snippets from the messengers that God sent, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, to give you an idea of what kind of message they were giving. And these are straight from the messengers themselves. This first one is from E.J. Wagner. And he says, in all our Christian experience, we have left little loopholes along here and there for sin. We have never dared to come to that place where we would believe that the Christian life should be a sinless life. We have not dared to believe it or preach it. But in that case, we cannot preach the law of God fully. Why not? Because we do not understand the power of justification by faith. So here Wagner says the power of justification by faith is a power that helps to keep us from sinning. Because when we believe the power of God, we will experience the power spoken of in Jude 24, which says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. That's not a fairy tale. That's a promise of God. And that was part of this message that the Lord sent to his church. Now, A.T. Jones, he says, Christ is to be in us, just as God was in him. And his character is to be in us, just as God was in him. It is the cooperation of the divine and the human, the mystery of God in you and me. That is the third angel's message. The power of Christ in us. A.T. Jones again. In Jesus Christ, as he was in sinful flesh, God has demonstrated before the universe that he can so take possession of sinful flesh as to manifest his own presence, his power, and his glory instead of sin manifesting itself. Then God will so take us and so use us that our sinful self shall not appear to influence or affect anybody. But God will manifest his righteous self, his glory before man in spite of all of ourselves and our sinfulness. And that is the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory, God manifest in sinful flesh. Another one from A.T. Jones. Perfection, perfection of character is the Christian goal. Per perfection attained in human flesh in this world. Christ attained it in human flesh in this world and thus made and consecrated a way by which in him every believer can attain it. Do you see the power in this message? And the last one is from Wagner. But before probation ends, there will be a people so complete in him that in spite of their sinful flesh, they will live sinless lives. They will live sinless lives in mortal flesh because he who has demonstrated that he has power over all flesh lives in them. 
lives a sinless life in sinful flesh. That is a powerful message, my brothers and sisters. That was the message God sent to this church 120 years ago to prepare a people for translation. And God is sending this message again, it's never changed, to prepare his Laodicean people who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And in his mercy, he says to us, I love you, return to me, accept this message of my righteousness. Turn from your idols, turn from your ways that are preventing you from receiving my righteousness through faith. By faith, lay hold of my merits. Accept my sacrifice. Allow Christ to come into your hearts. I'm standing at the door and knocking of your heart so that you will let me come in so that you can overcome as I overcame. And Christ is giving that message of mercy to us again in this generation because he does not want more generations to pass where we stand by and reject that message. In his mercy, he is saying to each one today, Please accept that message. Receive this message so I can fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit through the latter rain. Now, you know, I mentioned that we would come back to the story of Elijah because that story has much instruction for us in the present day because you would almost think you know when the fire came down from heaven consumed the sacrifice and god was proven to be the true god and the israelites all proclaimed in unison the lord he is god the lord he is god that would have been the end of the story but did the rain come as soon as the fire came once the fire came and consumed the sacrifice, did the rain come down from heaven? No, it didn't. What happened first? Let's read the story in 1 Kings. <clears throat> Chapter 18, starting in verse 42. Here we read, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he cast himself down between the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Do you think Elijah had read that passage from Second Chronicles before, which says, if my people, which are called by, called by my name, will humble themselves? Notice what Elijah is doing here. He is humbling himself before the Lord. He is putting his face between his knees. Verse 43, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. Now he didn't say go back seven times. He said that seven different times until his servant finally came back with the news. Verse 44, and it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Notice this. Elijah prayed seven times before the rain came. Now, after what had happened on Mount Carmel, how many times did Elijah pray before the fire came? One time. 
and the fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. And a lot of times in our spiritual experience, we will see a signal victory from God after we pray for His help and He sends His power and we're like, whoa, God is powerful. I prayed and immediately He answered. But when in the case of the rain, God had said there would not be rain for three and a half years. And so Elijah prays one time for the rain and he sends a servant and there's nothing. And then he sends him a second time and there's nothing. And Elijah must be wondering, but I prayed to God and that fire came down from heaven immediately and consumed the sacrifice. What happened? Why is it not coming? Third time. Fourth time. And by this time, Elijah is realizing, you know what? There is no power from my own that's going to bring this rain. I may be the prophet for God, but it's only going to be through His power. And finally, by the seventh time, as He's humbled Himself, as He's praying the prayer, He's reminding the promise to God, Lord, You promised in 2 Chronicles 7, 13, and 14, if we will humble ourselves, we are called by Your name. If we will humble ourselves, You will heal from, hear from heaven and heal our land. Please send the rain as You have promised. And finally, after the seventh time, we see the rain. Do you know that Elijah's prayer has a direct relationship to us as God's people today? And this is where I'm going to close. Because you know, Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 tells us to pray for rain in the time of the latter rain. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 says... Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Do you realize that we are living in the time where God wants to send the latter rain and He wants His people to be praying for the latter rain? When's the last time you have prayed for the outpouring of the latter rain on God's people? Well, in James chapter 5, we see how this story of Elijah fits with us today. James chapter 5, starting in verse 16, it says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then he gives us the example of someone who gave an effectual fervent prayer, who was a righteous man. Notice verse 17. Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Verse 18, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now notice, Elijah is just like us. But he, was an effect, he prayed effectually and fervently as a righteous man. But you know what? There's no difference from Elijah and us. He had like passions. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. And then he prayed again seven times, and he didn't know how many times it would take. And then the earth received rain, and it brought forth fruit. Now there's a very interesting connection with the earth bringing forth her fruit. And it's found in James chapter 5, verse 7. Very same chapter. 
the relationship of rain and fruit. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, who's the husbandman? That's Christ. The husbandman, or Christ, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So here's what James is saying. Christ has long patience when he's waiting to come to this earth. He is waiting to come back. He's waiting for the fruit of this earth to be ripe. But he will not come back until the latter rain has been poured out. So Christ is waiting for the fruit of the earth. We're not waiting for Christ. Christ is waiting for the fruit of the earth. And he's waiting for the latter rain to fall. And then James gives us an illustration. Do you want to know how to get that fruit right so that Jesus can come back? Look at Elijah. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, but he was a righteous man who gave an effectual, fervent prayer. And when he prayed, he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't for three and a half years, but then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. You know what that tells us? We are to be like Elijah. We are to pray for the latter rain the way Elijah prayed for the rain after it had not rained for three and a half years. And there are a few things that must happen in order for that prayer to be fulfilled. When God sent the message that there would not be rain, there was no rain for three and a half years, but the rain came after Elijah did a work of revival and reformation among the people. Elijah brought the people to Mount Carmel and he said, are you going to worship God or Baal? How long are you going to halt between two opinions? And he showed the fallacy of the false worship of Baal. And he showed that God is the true God. And with the assistance of the people of Israel, he killed the prophets of Baal. There was revival. People realized God is the true God. We must stop worshiping Baal. There was reformation. They killed the prophets of Baal. And after that, the rain could come. And God needs Elijah's again today. We can't just pray for the latter rain and hope that it will come if we are not experiencing revival and reformation in our churches. You know, Ellen White says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 121, that revival and reformation is the greatest of all of our needs. And God tells us in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that before the coming of the day of the Lord, he will send Elijah the prophet. 
And God needs Elijah's in our church today to help wake up this church because he sent the message 120 years ago to prepare us to receive the latter rain and yet we are still here. The latter rain has not fallen because we are like the people described in Jeremiah 3 who are naked and we refuse to be ashamed. When God sends the message, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, we say, no, we're not. We have the righteousness of Christ in the way we like it. Don't tell me I need to change. I'm going to stay the way I am and I'm going to worship God the way I've always worshipped Him. I like it that way. And God is sending a message through Elijah in the last days saying, it is time to wake up. It is time to see that your sins have put Jesus on the cross. You see Him on the cross dying for you. You see His overwhelming love for you. You accept it. You receive Him as your Savior. And you say, I, by the grace of God, receive His righteousness. And then your life changes into the likeness of Christ so that you receive His righteousness and you live His righteous life here on this earth through the power of Christ dwelling in you. And when we experience that revival and reformation that takes place, we will put away the idols in our lives that are causing us to not receive His righteousness. The idols of sports, the idols of work, the idols of entertainment and of anything else that you can think of that come between us and God. And when we put those things away, by the grace of God, and we receive His righteousness, then we, like Elijah, can pray effectually and fervently for the outpouring of the latter rain so that we will see the fulfillment of Revelation 18.1 where an angel comes down from heaven having great power and the earth is lightened with His glory. That is the time when the righteousness of Christ will be demonstrated to the world through the lives of His people. And God is calling each one of you here today to be part of that experience. And you know, there is one final connection between God's last day people and Elijah. You know, Elijah, he was translated to heaven without seeing death. Do you realize that God's last day people who receive the outpouring of the latter rain, who give the message to the, to the world that will lighten the earth with its glory, they also will be translated to heaven without seeing death. They are the 144,000. God is looking for a people today who will be like Elijah, who will do the work of revival and reformation in the church, starting with ourselves, making sure that the Lord comes into our lives, that we are cleansed of our sins, and then giving a message of warning to the church around us and to the world around us so that the latter rain can be poured out. And I want to close with this quote from Ellen White, Review and Herald, April 21, 1891. She says, The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? And you have to ask yourself, are you ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Because that is why we exist as Seventh-day Adventists. There's a lot of good things you can do in this world, but we exist to take part in the glorious work of the third angel so that Jesus can come back. Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? 
Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. And so I, I just plead with each one of us today, myself and to each one of you here, Jesus has been waiting a long time to come back to this earth. He sent a message in 1888 to prepare people for his coming. And yet so many times we have said, perhaps unknowingly, we would rather serve God in the way we want to rather than the way God says he wants us to serve him. And God is looking for a group of people who say enough is enough. I'm tired of worshiping God in my own selfish way, the way I want to serve him. I am going to serve God the way he has asked us to serve him so that he can work out his salvation in my life and so that my life can be a living demonstration of the life of Christ here on this earth so that when the latter rain is poured out, and I believe, brothers and sisters, it's going to be very soon, I will be one of the ones who receive the outpouring of that latter rain. Because you can say in your heart, well, maybe if I just keep playing games with God for a few more years, it will delay his coming a few more years, and then I'll get my life in order then. You don't say that because there may be people all around us that are re receiving this message and preparing their hearts. And when God's time comes, we may not be ready, and we don't want that to happen. We want to be ready now. Amen? And so I want to appeal to each one of you today, as you've heard this message, you may be thinking, you know, there's some things in my life that I know that are not right, that are causing me to actually worship Baal instead of God. And God is calling on you today to give those things up, to surrender your life completely to Him. And if that's the case, I would invite you to stand at this time. You want to give everything in your life to the Lord and say, I'm not going to worship Baal anymore. I'm going to worship the one and true God. And not only that, I'm going to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain in my life, so that God can do His work of revival and reformation through me. I praise the Lord to see all of you who are standing here today. And at this time, I'm going to offer a closing prayer as we dedicate our lives to God in you. Father in heaven, I thank you for each person that is here today. I thank you for how your Holy Spirit is working in our lives. I thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us because our sins put him there and we, we are deserving of nothing but the second death. And I thank you that Jesus was willing to step in and take that penalty so that we can have everlasting life. Lord, forgive us for, for not appreciating the immensity of the sacrifice that has been made for us. Forgive us for not meditating on what Christ has done for us in sacrificing his life so that we may have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would allow Christ to come into our lives so that Christ may live out his righteous life through us, so that we will have the experience of the life of Christ on this earth and will be a living demonstration of the life of Christ, and that Jesus may come soon 
and that we may be among those who give the final message of warning to this world. So, Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done for us, for what you're doing for us now, and we pray that your coming will be soon, and I pray that each one of us will be among those who are fitted for translation and will be among those who, like Elijah, will never taste death but will see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven so that we can live throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.